Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. This is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. I know you're familiar with the Eastern Roman Empire from Carl's coverage of the Battle of Yarmouk. But the Byzantines were involved in a number of other key battles, which were epic and dramatic. It's just that the Byzantines won, or clung on by the skin of their teeth, and so the status quo remained. If you want to hear how the Eastern Romans shielded Europe from the rising tide of Islam, then check out the history of Byzantium. For now, it's back to the Crusades. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles. The siege of Constantinople of 1203-1204. to The Fourth Crusade. Part 2 of 2. According to Norse saga, in about 1110, a king of Norway and his band of followers were sailing back to their distant northern homeland after a pilgrimage to the Holy City. They stopped off at a city named Miklagarth, where their reception was magnificent. The streets from the harbour to the palace were covered with precious cloth in his honour. On reaching the palace, the visitors were ushered into a lavish banquet and gifted great chests filled with gold. Finally, they brought in a cloak of costly purple cloth and two gold rings for the king, who stood and made an eloquent speech thanking the ruler for his generosity. Afterwards, the Norwegians were treated to an outside display of horsemanship, music and fireworks. Above where they were seated were bronze statues, so skillfully wrought that they looked as if they were alive. The tale was not some fantastic invention of the saga's author. Miklagarth's proper name was Constantinople, and the ruler who would entertain them was Alexius I, Comnenus. A whole host of travellers' memoirs tell of the great city's splendour and wealth, many astonished at what they saw. When the Fourth Crusaders arrived in 1203, they wrote that those who had never been there before gazed intently at the city, having never imagined that there could be so fine a place in all the world. It was also a source of immense pride to its inhabitants, So magnificent a place did they consider it that they seldom even referred to it by name. Instead they used epithets such as the Queen of Cities, the Great City, or simply the City, there being no possible doubt as to which city was being referred to. In a world where few cities in Europe had a population of 20,000, Constantinople boasted hundreds of thousands. The area enclosed by its walls was almost 30,000 hectares. Founded by Constantine the Great in the early 4th century, 
the city had become imbued over the centuries with legends and Christian myths that gave the place a spiritual aura to match its physical grandeur. The city's longevity was quite remarkable, having survived the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century and sustained sieges by Persians and Arabs in the 7th century. Of all the great cities of the ancient world, Constantinople alone avoided takeover or destruction. Constantine had chosen the site well, as it possessed numerous advantages when it came to defence. Since it was built on narrow promontory, almost triangular in shape, there was a natural defence in the sea on two sides of the city. To the northeast lay a fine harbour, the Golden Horn, while the Bosporus and the Sea of Marmara bordered to the east and south. Its west and northwestern sides were protected by magnificent walls built in the time of the Emperor Theodosius II in the early 5th century. Constructed of limestone blocks, divided at intervals by layers of bricks, the wall stood 12 metres high and was about 5.5 metres thick. It was punctuated at intervals by 96 towers, which provided broad platforms for ballistae and catapults. In front of the wall stood a ditch between 15 and 20 metres across and between 5 and 7 metres deep. In the year 447 was built a second wall between the ditch and main wall, a little lower than the first wall. The whole construction was virtually impregnable. Yet the walls did have a few vulnerable points which could be exploited by those in the know. One was the pipes and aqueducts which crossed them to bring in the city's water supply. Another weakness was to be found at the northern extremity of the city walls, a bulge in the otherwise fairly straight line that enclosed an important imperial residence, the Palace of Blacanae. During the 12th century, this section was completely rebuilt and strengthened, which went some way towards reducing the danger, but it remained a weak point. The southwestern entrance was called the Golden Gate, flanked by two great marble towers, guarded over by two huge copper elephants, and surrounded by statues of classical scenes, such as the labours of Hercules. From the Golden Gate to the centre of the city was three miles of avenues, decorated with statues and punctuated by a series of public squares dating from the 4th to 6th centuries. They included a vast forum of Theodosius, which would have been very striking to visitors from Western Europe where such towns possessed no open public space to speak of. At its centre stood a 40 metre high stone column bearing the name of Theodosius, ruled 379 to 395, and decorated with reliefs depicting its namesake's victories. There was a doorway at ground level and a spiral staircase inside that gave access to the top. Further east, the visitor would reach the last of the great squares, the Augustion, where they would see the magnificent church of Hagia Sophia, constructed on the orders of the Emperor Justinian. Over 50 metres high, with a dome 32 metres across, it remained the largest cathedral in the world for nearly a thousand years. Inside, columns of different coloured marble 
red, purple and green, supported the galleries, and the entire dome was decorated with gold mosaics, which dazzled with the light shining from the forty small windows around the base of the dome. At the centre of the Augustion was another great column with a statue of Justinian, and around the square were a number of other curiosities, such as the Horologion, a mechanical clock, one of whose twenty-four doors flew open at the appropriate hour of the day. Here was also a triumphal arch of the Emperor Constantine, and also the Senate House, decorated with ancient columns and statues. To the south of the Augustean stood the Hippodrome, a long stadium some 400 metres in length, which could seat up to 100,000 people. Originally designed for chariot racing, in the 12th century it provided the venue for all sorts of public events, from music and fireworks to displays of tightrope walking. Some of the monuments in the Hippodrome had long histories behind them, such as the Serpent Column, which had originally been dedicated at Delphi in Greece in 478 BC to commemorate the Greek victory over the Persians in the Battle of Plataea. The southeastern corner of the city was dominated by the Great Palace, based upon Constantine's original palace, but expanded many times over the centuries. According to Robert of Clary, this complex of buildings contained more than 30 chapels and 500 halls, all connected with one another and all made with gold mosaic, and along with the Palace of Blackenai was the Emperor's favourite residence. During the 12th century, the Emperors Alexius I, John II and Manuel provided much-needed stability but this was shattered in 1183 by the violent takeover by Andronicus I and the attempts over his three-year reign to exterminate any of the aristocracy who might threaten his position. As the executions of the nobility grew ever more frequent, a young member of the extended royal family called Isaac Angelos was driven to a desperate act of rebellion. The chronicler Coniates with typical colour, describes the events when a group of henchmen were sent to arrest him. Quote, Isaac saw that he could not escape the dragonet spread out by the angler, which was already closing in on him. He did not turn coward or become faint-hearted, but as one about to die, he chose to give battle. End quote. Cuniates describes how he killed his attackers and escaped to the great church, where citizens gathered to support him. Quote, Thus Isaac passed the whole night, not in discussion about the throne, but in prayer that he not be killed. He knew that the flesh-eating Andronicus would sacrifice him like an ox, or savour raw bits of his flesh like cyclops. Thanks to his anxious supplication, several of the assembled populace shut the gates of the temple and brought in lights and persuaded many, by their example, not to depart from their homes. End quote. Soon afterwards, the tyrant Emperor Andronicus had cause to fears for his own life when his troops lost control of the city in a rebellion. Andronicus tried to flee Constantinople by ship, but he was captured, dragged to the Hippodrome and was lynched by an angry mob. Isaac was anointed a new emperor, 
but his court had to deal with the poisoned legacy of his predecessor, who had soured imperial relations with the West. Isaac returned to the conciliatory tone of his predecessor, Manuel I, attempting to present an image acceptable to Western opinion by maintaining earnestly his deep compassion for the fate of the Holy Land. He married his sister to Conrad of Montferrat and himself married the daughter of the King of Hungary, whose family was by now well integrated into the network of the royal families of Christian Europe. It was during Isaac's reign that Frederick Barbarossa came through Byzantine territory in his ill-fated journey to join the Third Crusade. The Byzantines were wary of Frederick's intentions, many believing the expedition's real purpose was to attack the empire. Some of Frederick's forces clashed with imperial troops on the way, and when the German king's army suffered great losses, including Frederick himself, over Turkish-controlled Antonia, many in the west blamed Constantinople. While preparing for one of many offensives against Bulgaria in 1195, Alexius Angelos, the emperor's older brother, taking advantage of Isaac's absence from camp on a hunting expedition, proclaimed himself emperor and was readily recognised by the soldiers as Emperor Alexius III. Isaac was blinded and imprisoned in Constantinople. Once in power, Alexius III pursued much the same line of policy as his brother had, and went even further in his efforts to build bridges with the West, perhaps because his position was weaker. His highly questionable usurpation of the throne could provide justification for attacks on empire. So he sent ambassadors to Rome in February 1199, bearing gifts for the newly elected Pope, Innocent III. The Emperor also sent a message wishing his pious concern for the recovery of Jerusalem, though carefully not committing Byzantium to a crusade. With typical Byzantine cunning, Alexis III's excuse for not getting involved directly was the argument that the precise moment the Holy City was recaptured was in the hands of God, not men. Alexius also raised the question of a reunion of churches and asked the Pope to call a council for such a purpose. In the West by this time had arisen a strong conviction that Byzantium should atone for previous misdemeanours, such as its perceived lack of support for previous crusades, and its ambivalent relationship with Saladin, by making its immense resources freely available for a new crusade. The forcing of such concessions was made more attractive by the Empire's obvious weakness, as compared to in the earlier reigns of John II and Manuel I. In November 1199, after Innocent had proclaimed the Fourth Crusade, he wrote to Alexius III with a stern warning that the Byzantines must put an end to the schism. As regards the recovery of Jerusalem, Innocent wrote, quote, If you wish to wait because the time of the redemption of that same land is unknown to men, and do nothing by yourself, leaving all things to divine disposition, the Holy Sepulchre may be delivered from the Saracens without the help of your aid. Therefore, through negligence, your imperial magnificence would incur divine wrath, when through solicitude you could have merited the gratitude of the Lord. 
for you ought most zealously to attend to this as human energy allows, so that you might be able to extinguish or feed the fire in distant regions, lest it be able to, in some measures to reach all the ways to your territories. End quote. In other words, a significant financial contribution was diplomatically but sternly demanded. In September 1201, Alexius III led his army out to Thrace to deal with an usurper. For some reason he took his nephew with him, Prince Alexius, son of the deposed Isaac. Young Alexius succeeded in escaping from the army and fleeing to the west sought help in restoring his father to the throne. Reaching Italy, he received news that in the nearby port of Zara, a huge army was engaged in a new crusade, though its plans were being hampered by a severe shortage of money. Alexius had the idea of offering to pay off the crusade's debts in return for helping him regain his rightful inheritance, the throne of Byzantium from his uncle. By the strict laws of succession, the young man had no right to the throne, but such technicalities were probably ignored. Viraduin recorded Alexius's appeal. Quote, Since you campaign for God, right and justice, you must also return the inheritance to those who have been wrongly dispossessed, if you can. And Angelus will give you the best terms that anyone has ever offered to a people, and most valuable help in conquering the land overseas. Firstly, if God allows you to restore his inheritance to him, he will put the whole of Byzantium in obedience to Rome, from which it has been severed. Next, because he understands how you have given everything you have for the crusade, so that you are now poor, he will give 200,000 silver marks to the nobles and the ordinary people together, and he himself will personally go with you to the land of Egypt with 10,000 men. End quote. The terms were extraordinarily generous and seemed to meet the desires of all parties involved in the expedition. The offer to recognise the primacy of Rome was primarily aimed at the Pope. Innocent, though, had not been persuaded by an earlier approach from Prince Alexius and was no more convinced now. He was vehemently opposed to yet another attack on Christian lands and let the Crusaders know in no uncertain terms. Viraduin admits a great deal of dissension among the ranks against the proposal to attack Byzantium, but the Crusader leaders... Bonifacio of Montferrat and Baldwin of Flanders were determined to go ahead and agreed with the Venetians to accept and divert the crusade to Constantinople. They claimed the crusade was not, in a formal sense, being directed against the Greeks and was a morally justifiable war to reinstate the rightful ruler of the empire. To their opponents, however, the idea of men bearing the cross of Christ fighting their way into another Christian city was utterly repugnant. When the fleet moved on from Zara to Corfu, a large group protested and declared that they would remain on the island until ships could be found to take them back to Italy, from where they could make their own way to the Holy Land. Several prominent noblemen, including Simon de Montfort, carried out their threat and left the army. Finally, the idea that Byzantium should help resource the crusade won the day, albeit with difficulty, and in late June 1203, the Crusaders had reached the great city walls of Constantinople. Among the Byzantines who witnessed their arrival was Cuniates, overcome with emotion as he recalls the events. 
Quote, Up to now, the course of my history has been smooth, and it went easily. Now to tell the truth, I hardly know how to describe what happened next. End quote. Cuniatus was scathing about Alexius III as, quote, a man who could not even lead sheep, end quote. The emperor was lazy, pleasure-seeking, complacent, and sat back like a spectator. Despite surely having had some warning of the crusaders' arrival, he had done nothing to prepare the city's defences or navy. But finally a response came. The emperor dispatched an envoy to the crusaders, who had established base in the city of Chalcedon on the opposite side of the Bosporus from Constantinople. The message went as follows, quote, My lord, the emperor Alexius, has sent me to say that he is well aware that next to kings you are the noblest men alive, and come from the best country in the world. He therefore seriously wonders why and for what purpose you have entered this land over which he rules. For you are Christians just as he is, and he knows very well that you have left your country to deliver the Holy Land overseas and the Holy Cross and Sepulchre. If you are poor and in want of supplies, he will give you a share of his provisions and his money, provided you withdraw from his land. If you refuse to leave, he would be reluctant to do you harm, yet it is his power to do so. End quote. This was classic Byzantine-style diplomacy and had worked numerous times in the past, but not now. Dandolo and Boniface sailed up to the city walls in ten galleys under a flag of truce and displayed the young Prince Alexius to the population who explained that he had come to free them from the tyrant. The response was silence and in shouts of We do not recognise him as our lord. We do not even know who he is. Followed shortly after with a sharp volley of arrows for added emphasis. Not a single person had expressed support for the young man. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It became clear to the Crusaders that they would have to fight their way in if they wanted the money and men to win back Jerusalem. The plan formulated was to attack the city's harbour in the sheltered Golden Horn, an area settled by many Venetians. To protect the harbour, the Byzantines had a chain of iron links strung across its mouth, from the walls of the city to the town of Galata, on the headland opposite and it was this tower that the Crusaders attacked first. Thus began the largest amphibious assault in medieval history up to that time. The Crusaders and their horses were loaded into transport ships, which since they were sailing boats, dependent on the direction of the winds, were towed towards the land by galleys. They ran aground on the beach at the small 
suburb of Galata, where they were confronted by a mass of Greek soldiers. The holds of the transport ships were well suited to the amphibious assault. The doors to the holds opened into ramps across which the knights charged. For the Greeks, with the advantage of possession, it should have been a fiercely contested battle, but they tamely surrendered their position and allowed the knights onto land. Perhaps they were overwhelmed by the psychological effect as well as the physical momentum of the knights' sudden charge, but it did not bode well for the emperor that his troops were reluctant to stand their ground. Alexis, though, still held the Galata Tower, the key to the sea chain. Next morning, the Greeks burst out the tower for a counter-attack. The Crusaders were, at first, caught by surprise, but they regrouped and repulsed the Greeks, who attempted to flee back into the tower. The fastest of the pursuers caught the slowest of the Greek soldiers and managed to stop them from closing the gate, and the tower was quickly taken. The intruders were now able to break through the sea chain into the harbour, where they soon dealt with the few decrepit Byzantine warships which tried to counter-attack. The crusaders proceeded into the harbour, where they built a fortified camp. While the Venetian ships readied for an attack from the sea, the French crusaders planned to attack the city walls. Four days after the ford of Galata, they marched up the east bank of the Golden Horn and attempted to make a crossing at a small bridge opposite the north-eastern corner of the walls. Here was another opportunity for the Byzantines to repel their adversary. They broke the bridge but failed to prevent the crusaders from repairing it and marching across, who were now able to set up camp on a hill directly opposite the emperor's favoured residence, the Belicernae Palace, set into the city walls. On the 17th of July, a simultaneous attack began, the French at the northern city walls and Venetians at the sea wall by the harbour. In the land attack were employed scaling ladders, battering rams, mining equipment and heavy catapults. The Venetians, meanwhile, made their move in ships especially adapted for the assault. On them were mounted stone-throwing machines and they were covered with flame-proof hides to protect the attackers from missiles. The Emperor finally stirred himself from complacency. He sent down detachments of his elite troops, the Anglo-Danish Varingian Guard, to force the intruders out. The Venetians were unable to withstand this counter-attack and fell back to their newly captured towers. Desperate to retain a foothold, they began torching the houses as they went to create a barrier of fire between themselves and the advancing Greeks. In the heat of a July day, the flames soon spread and ripped their way through the densely packed streets. By the time the fire was finally halted, 125 acres of the city had been reduced to ash and maybe 20,000 people had lost their homes. To Coniatas, quote, that day produced a pitiful spectacle. It demanded rivers of tears to match the terrible fire, end quote. This should have been the moment for Alexius III to exploit his numerical superiority and order an overwhelming charge. Yet the onslaught never came. Wary of heavy western cavalry, the unwarlike emperor sufficed with forcing the Venetians out of the city instead of pressing home the advantage gained. 
The Crusaders were mightily relieved, considering themselves fortunate to have escaped a potential disaster. Whereas the attackers had fought bravely, with deep resolve, the Greeks seemed unwilling to risk their lives for what they perhaps considered yet another fight between claimants for the throne, rather than an invasion by a foreign power. The strongest resistance had come from the Varangian Guard and the Pisans, who were bitter rivals of the Venetians. At this point the Emperor Alexis III lost his nerve. Gathering up a large quantity of gold and imperial ornaments, he fled the city by night. The discovery of his absence the next morning was a surprise, and shock not only to the courtiers, but also to most members of his family. The blinded former emperor, Isaac Angelus, was brought up from the dungeons and placed once more on the imperial throne. Isaac immediately sent word to his son, Alexius, who was still with the crusader fleet, inviting him to come to the city. The young Alexius was crowned as Alexius IV to rule as co-emperor alongside his father and with the crusaders having achieved their objective of restoring him to the throne, that perhaps should have been the end of the matter. However, when it became clear to the restored Isaac of the deal that his foolish son had struck with the Westerners, his jaw dropped. The financial promises were outrageous, a sum perhaps four times the annual revenue of the imperial government, and as for the promises to place the Orthodox Church under the authority of Rome, even if somehow the court and clergy could somehow be persuaded, the populace would instantly riot at such news. The Western envoys, which included Villarduin, though were insistent. Isaac felt he had little choice but to accept, and the envoys returned triumphantly to their camp. The Westerners were paid what Isaac and the young Alexius immediately had to hand, and became free to tour the city. They marvelled at its wealth, its statues and holy relics. Here was a city vastly richer than any had seen in Europe. Since Alexius, who became effectively the senior emperor, was unable to raise the demanded sums for the imperial treasury, he sought to make up the shortfall by appropriating church goods, such as the gold and silver frames of icons, which he melted down into coin. Coniates was typical of the Byzantines, dismayed at the voracious greed of the Latins. Quote, they yearned to drink again and again from a river of gold, as if bitten by snakes that make men rabid with a thirst that can never be quenched. End quote. In the poorer districts of the city, resentment flared against the imposition of the Crusaders, an ever volatile mob took to the streets. They vented their anger against Latins, regardless of whether they were associated with the crusading fleet or not, so forcing the local Pisan and Genoese merchants to side with their fellow Westerners. Then, on the night of 19th of August, a group of Frenchmen, Venetians and Pisans, raided a mosque just outside the sea walls, in the belief that Arab merchants there had secret hoards of treasure. A crowd of Byzantines came to help the Arabs defend themselves, and the battle ensued. The Latins were driven off, but took their revenge by setting alight some of the buildings around them. This fire raged for a week, causing yet more extensive damage to the city until it finally died down. 
The young Alexius IV was now becoming desperate, realising he was unlikely ever to be able to pay the sum of money he had promised, and that without any power base in the city, he was totally dependent on the Crusaders for support. You must know, he told the Crusaders, that the Greeks hate me because of you, and if you abandon me, I will lose this land again, and they will kill me. By the end of September, with the demanded payment still not in sight, the Crusaders accepted Alexius's offer to overwinter in the city. After all, it was by now too late in the year to campaign in the Holy Land. The young emperor was walking a tightrope between the irreconcilable demands of the Westerners and of his own people. By the winter of 1203, the situation in Constantinople had reached crisis point. The sense of disintegration and helplessness described by Cuniatas was palpable. The queen of cities, with all its great buildings and symbols of power, was being brought to its knees by incompetent rulers, its own agitated citizenry and the uncompromising Westerners. On the 1st of December, the ill feelings between the Greeks and the Latins broke out again into open violence. The city mob tried to attack the Crusaders' ships, but were beaten off, prompting the Westerners to send envoys to Alexius, once more to repeat their demands for the promised money, and implying that the Greeks had acted treacherously. Viraduin recounts how, quote, the Greeks were much amazed and deeply shocked by this openly defiant message and declared that no one had ever yet been so bold as to dare issue such a challenge to an emperor of Constantinople in his own hall. The emperor Alexis himself and all the other Greeks who so often in the past had greeted them with smiling faces now scowled fiercely at the envoys. End quote. Even if Alexis had wanted to offer a more conciliatory response to the envoys, the mood inside the hall meant that this would have been suicidal. Viradwin felt so intimidated he was relieved to have escaped from the court with his life. Robert of Clary describes Dandolo's response to Alexius, quote, Wretched boy, we dragged you out of the filth, and into the filth we will cast you again. End quote. From early December, there were skirmishes, but neither side wanted to mount an outright assault. The man who emerged as the leader of those Greeks, willing to engage now in direct battle with the Westerners, was a nobleman by the name of Alexius Ducus, who had the nickname Motsuflus in response to his bushy, overhanging eyebrows. On the 7th of January, Alexius Ducus led a body of Greek horsemen, out of the city to confront the Western army, and was met by Boniface of Montferrat. He was forced back, but his attempt demonstrated his willingness to defend the city and a courage clearly missing from either Alexius III or the young Alexius IV. The Venetians responded by plundering the shores of the Golden Horde and deliberately trying to start more fires within the city. The city mob responded by taking over the Hagia Sophia, quote, like a boiling kettle, to blow off a steam of abuse against the emperors, end quote, and compelled the Senate, an assembly of bishops and senior clergy, to elect a new ruler. The nobility were afraid and at first refused to appoint any of their number. As Cuniatis says, 
quote, because we realised full well that whoever was proposed for the election would be led out like a sheep to the slaughter, end quote. After three days, they seized an unwilling young noble, Nicholas Canavos, led him to the church, placed a crown on his head, proclaimed him emperor, and retained him there. The young Alexius IV, fearing for his life, desperately called on the crusaders to enter the palace and secure his position. In response, Alexius Ducas persuaded the palace power brokers and the Varingian guard to back him in a rebellion. In the dead of night, on the 27th of January, Ducas threw the young Alexius into the dungeons and had himself proclaimed emperor as Alexius V. In the chaos, there were now no less than four emperors in the city. The blind Isaac, Alexius IV in prison, Alexius V, Ducas in the palace, and Canavos. Alexius V ordered the Ringian guard to break into the Hagia Sophia and deal with Canavos. The unfortunate young noble, his supporters quickly melting away, was taken off and decapitated. The blind Isaac, when he was told of the palace coup, was seized by terror and died. Alternatively, he may well have been strangled. Alexius Ducas signalled his uncompromising attitude to the Westerners by issuing a threat that they should depart within seven days or risk death. He reorganised the imperial administration by sweeping away many of the previous incumbents, including Coniates, and installed his own supporters. He then ordered that the city fortifications be strengthened and the construction of catapults and the placing where he believed the crusader assault was most likely to come from. Ducas also withdrew all the markets upon which the Westerners had relied, compelling them to roam far and wide in their efforts to gather food. When a group of crusaders were returning from a raid on the Black Sea coast, Ducas rode out to intercept them, taking with him the imperial banner and a precious icon of the Virgin, whose presence was said to ensure victory in battle. In a fierce clash, the Greeks were rebuffed, but Ducas rode back, reporting that the battle had been won. Questioned as to the whereabouts of the icon and banner, he became evasive, saying that they had been put away for safekeeping. The next day, in an attempt to humiliate the upstart emperor, the Venetians sailed up and down the city walls, taunting him by displaying the captured banner and icon. Ducas remained resolute, swearing to make the enemy pay heavily. A day later, Ducas requested a parley with the crusaders. Dandolo himself led the negotiating party and was as uncompromising as ever, demanding both the money and the release of young Alexius IV. In the middle of discussions, the crusader cavalry suddenly descended upon the emperor, who wheeled his horse round and only scarcely managed to escape. Ducas decided the young Alexius, while still alive, was a liability. He gave out that he had died of natural causes and buried him with honour, but nobody was persuaded. Indeed, all reports say Ducas killed the young man with his own hands. For the Crusaders, there was now no more negotiation. Giving up now after all the energy spent was not an option, nor was a lengthy siege, since supplies were fast running out. Constantinople must be stormed. 
through the period of Lent 1204, both sides made ready to fight. The Greeks anticipated the Crusaders' attack was most likely to come from the Golden Horn, so fortified this section with a row of wooden towers aimed at preventing the enemy scaling the walls. Ducas, though, did not neglect the land walls and ordered all the gates to be bricked up for extra security. The Crusaders made their attack on the 8th of April and were met by volleys of arrows. Enormous stone blocks were dropped onto the French siege engines and destroyed them, forcing the attackers to withdraw. Four days later, the Crusaders made another assault and at first were no more successful than the last time. Under the direction of the new emperor, the Greeks fought with more courage and determination. Both sides had defended so effectively that by midday, stalemate was reached, and the assault seemed to have stalled. Just as the crusaders were giving up hope, they got a stroke of luck. A change in the direction of the wind enabled a pair of Venetian ships, named the Paradise and the Lady Pilgrim, to reach the city wall. For the first time, one of the Crusader ships hugged Constantinople's towers. Almost certain death would meet any individual who dared climbing onto the battlements. The first man across, an unnamed Venetian, was cut to pieces, but his companions, urged on by a sense of heroism, scrambled over. The next, according to Robert of Clary, was a Frenchman, Andrew of Durebois, who, better armoured, was hardly hurt by an attack by the garrison, who promptly fled down to the next level of the tower. Many other crusaders followed and raised their flag to announce the breakthrough. From his hilltop view, Ducas tried to rally his troops and direct them to the threatened tower, but the crusader assault was gathering momentum. The attackers next sought to break a hole in the wall at sea level. Under intense attack from crossbow bolts and boiling pitch, a group of crusaders bravely succeeded in hacking open such a hole with axes, swords and picks. The first man to risk his life crawling through the rubble was the brother of Robert of Clary, a warrior cleric named Aloemes. Again, Greek resistance faltered, allowing the bravery and belief of this single man to make a crucial breakthrough. Those who had breached the walls now broke down the nearest gate from inside. The doors were thrown open and horse transports glided up to the shore. As more gates were forced open, the mounted knights started pouring into the city. The emperor's own men were drawn up to face the crusader charge, but once they caught sight of the enemy, they panicked and scattered. As the crusaders swept into Constantinople, they unleashed a wave of violence. Various eyewitnesses provide undeniable testimony of the terrible brutality that ensued. A thousand years of imperial and religious art was destroyed or confiscated, as public buildings, churches and the mansions of the rich were plundered. Coniatus described how the Hagia Sophia was broken into and stripped of its treasures, including the tomb of the great emperor Justinian. Though dead for over 600 years, his cadaver in an airtight container had not decomposed. Though the crusaders were impressed, it did not stop them stealing the valuables lying around the imperial body. To Cuniates, it was as if those who had come in the name of God had been filled with a kind of terrible madness. 
Quote, what then should I recount first, and what last of those things dared at that time by these murderous men? Oh, the shameful dashing to earth of the venerable icons, and the flinging of the relics of the saints, who had suffered for Christ's sake into defiled places. End quote. Any attempt to reason with the conquerors was met with a cold blade, and anyone who tried to leave the city was stopped, and the carts ruthlessly plundered. Another eyewitness to the sack, Nicholas Mesarites, wrote of the Westerners, stroke, tearing children from mothers and mothers from children, treating the virgin with wanton shame in holy chapels, viewing with fear neither the wrath of God nor the vengeance of men. End quote. It was an incredible shock for a proud ruling elite who found themselves reduced to the status of refugees. In ragged clothes to conceal their origins, they fled the city, their houses appropriated by the conquerors. According to Viradwin, everyone took quarters where they pleased, and there was no lack of fine dwellings in that city. End quote. From the point of view of the common soldier, such as Robert of Clary, the issue of accommodation became divisive. From his perspective, in the betrayal of the common people, the leadership divided the spoils of war between themselves, including the best houses. There was a notable personal edge to Robert's complaints because his brother, Aruames, the man who had bravely been the first to break through the city wall, was at first given a measly ten marks, though on appeal his act of courage was recognised and he was duly compensated. Much of what was seized was carted back to the west by returning soldiers, and some of it still survives today, including various precious objects piously presented to their local churches back home. The greatest hoard of stolen objects, however, ended up in Venice, much of which was used to adorn St Mark's Cathedral. In no way was the fault of the city inevitable. Viladouin wrote how never had so many been besieged by so few, the population numbering perhaps three quarters of a million at the time. Had the Westerners been beaten back with more determination or better military leadership, they would have had to give up eventually. The fact that it did fall was a terrible indictment of imperial weakness and political incompetence. While the sack was still going on, a meeting took place to decide who should be chosen as the new emperor. To everyone's astonishment, the man elected was Baldwin of Flanders, over Boniface of Montferrat, who had been leader of the crusade. The Venetians supported Baldwin's candidacy and in return gained generous trading concessions within the empire, including trading posts, ports and castles. Boniface, enraged, went off and carved out his own effectively independent fief based around the city of Thessalonica. Innocent initially applauded the Crusaders for bringing the Byzantines under the Catholic Church, but when the truth about the city's fall reached the Pope, he was furious. To him the enterprise had been, quote, nothing but an example of affliction and the works of hell, end quote. The sack of Constantinople was the greatest scandal of the age, perhaps the blackest mark in the morally patchy history of the Crusades. 
there can be no question of a preconceived plot to seize the Byzantine Empire by any of the Western powers involved in the Fourth Crusade. The reason why I ended up in Constantinople was in response to the invitation by the foolish Prince Alexius to help him gain the throne. In 1201, the Venetians had built the fleet of ships in good faith, according to the deal struck with the French nobles, who in hindsight had recklessly and grossly overestimated the numbers of men who would come to Venice. Both the resulting debt and the years of bitterness which had built over the years between the Greeks and Latins drove forward the crusade, and can partly explain the need for plunder, but the extent and savagery of the sack of Constantinople can only be explained by sheer avarice and greed. Since late antiquity, a major strand of Byzantine diplomacy had been based on great shows of wealth and splendour to impress and awe people from less prosperous parts of the world. The emperors had paid mercenaries and then the crusaders handsomely for their military service. But this policy, in the end, backfired as it only served to feed the crusaders' lust for treasure and give an impression that the empire was more wealthy and powerful than it really was. The Latins could therefore not understand why the Greeks were not contributing as much to the Crusader cause as they felt they should. It was not just the sack of April 1204 which caused lasting damage to the Byzantine Empire. The tragedy was that the regime which came to power in Constantinople was unable to build a new political order. The economic system which had generated so much wealth for Byzantium was broken. The empire was carved up into a number of Latin feudal states, which individually were too weak to face the many challenges, including the local Bulgarian and Turkish states, as well as a number of Byzantine splinter states. For the Venetians, the Fourth Crusade was an extraordinary opportunity, which they exploited to transform their republic into a maritime empire which came to dominate trade in the eastern Mediterranean for the high to late Middle Ages. For the Crusaders, however, possession of a Constantinople in ruins became an unwanted burden that only hindered the fight for the Holy Land. The old bureaucratic elite were in exile and relocated to the Greek splinter states, while many of the skilled craftsmen were shipped off to Venice, so there were no longer the personnel or resources required to run an effective state from the city. A policy of reconciliation towards the local Orthodox population may have provided the possibility of cooperation between Latins and Greeks, and the city's reconstruction. Instead, the heavy-handedness of its Latin rulers fed a growing resentment and desire for revenge. In 1261, the Greeks were successful in recapturing the city, but from then on the formerly mighty empire was a pale shadow of what it had once been, and would eventually fall to the Turks nearly 200 years later. So the ultimate beneficiaries of the events of 1204 were Muslims. The fall of Constantinople allowed the Turks to consolidate power in Anatolia, across which they built a network of settlements and trade routes, which became the political and economic base for a powerful new state, 
which eventually turned out to be, in some ways, the true successor of the Byzantine Empire. The Fourth Crusade, in the end, did more harm than good to the cause of the Crusader states. Over the 13th century, Western leaders became less interested in fighting in the distant East. Although there were notable efforts to recover the Holy Land in the 5th to 8th Crusade, none of these were successful, and the last Crusader presence in the Levant was eradicated in 1291. The Fourth Crusade helped to generalise the idea of Crusades, which now more often became directed at enemies closer to home instead of to the Holy Land. An example of which is the Albigensian Crusade against the Cathars of southern France. I will cover the Albigensian Crusade soon, but beforehand there are some other key battles I want to talk about. My first idea for a history podcast, before deciding on key battles, was to talk about the early 1200s. Why this obscure period? Well, because it was a time when the map of Europe was starting to form, a time of several key events which could all have gone in a very different direction. So I'm particularly looking forward to doing the next episodes. The next subject will be the Anglo-French conflict between Philip Augustus of France and Henry II, Richard the Lionheart and King John of England, focusing on the siege of Chateau Gaillard, 1203-1204. Next I switch back to Spain for the epic Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa, before returning to France with the Battle of Bouvan of 1214. After that, the Albigensian Crusade, with particular focus on the Battle of Murray and the Crown of Aragon. And after that, the Mongols will arrive. Please be patient if I don't release podcast as quickly as I would like. The next release will arrive in perhaps a month's time. In the meantime, I encourage you to encourage me by giving me a review on iTunes or giving me a like on Facebook at facebook.com stroke history europe net. Let me know if you have any comments or suggestions on Facebook or my blog www.historyeurope.net or writing to me directly at carl at historyeurope.net. At the beginning of this podcast, you heard an intro by Robin Pearson of the History of Byzantium podcast. If you haven't yet been able to check it out, I highly recommend his narration of the story of this splendid empire and its turbulent history. Thank you for getting to the end of this podcast, a bit longer than usual, and I look forward to speaking to you again next time. Until then, goodbye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.